Once upon a time, there were six men, all blind from birth, who lived in a small village. Though they had never left their home, they eagerly listened to stories of the outside world. But they were confused by stories they heard of elephants, and elephants' ferocious power could destroy forests and villages. But they also heard tales of people riding elephants for travel. Could such a creature actually be for real? To learn how such a mighty, yet gentle creature existed, the blind men set out to experience an elephant with their sense of touch. Each man set a hand on the majestic animal. The first man felt the elephant's trunk and thought it must be a large, thick snake. The second man ran his fingers along the beast's tusk and assumed that an elephant is hard and smooth like a spear. When the third man grazed the elephant's ear with his fingers, the air moved, cooling him. The elephant was a fan. The fourth man, feeling the elephant's leg, pronounced it a large cow. The fifth man shook the elephant's tail and declared the elephant was a rope. And the final man, setting his hand on the elephant's body, said the creature was like a large wall. The men could not believe they disagreed. As they argued into the night, a young woman approached them and said that they were all correct, because each man had only felt one part of the elephant. He alone could not grasp the entire picture. But if they combined their observations, they could truly understand what an elephant was. The story of the blind men and the elephant is at least two thousand years old. It can be found in Buddhist, Hindu, and Jain texts. It's a simple yet powerful story about how our blind spots literally can create tension and confusion. I see this as a story about the power of data. Data can show us our blind spots, and one piece of data might not present the entire picture. We have to view data in the aggregate to get a clear picture of what's in front of us. We all have elephants that we are trying to understand. And today on Data Radicals, we're talking with someone who spent her career illuminating blind spots. Cindy Hausen is the Chief Data Strategy Officer at ThoughtSpot and the host of the Data Chief podcast. Cindy is an analytics and BI thought leader and an expert with a flair for bridging business needs with technology. I can think of no better guest today to discuss our blind spots than her. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Cindy Housen, Chief Data Strategy Officer at ThoughtSpot and the host of the Data Chief podcast. In this episode, she and Satyan discuss the importance of data-driven decision-making, how to improve within an enterprise, how data can strengthen DNI initiatives, and much more. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. What if we told you that data governance can drive real business results? This white paper from Gardner shows you how. Go to alation.com slash DAG to get your free copy of Gardner's guide. It's called Adaptive Data and Analytics Governance to Achieve Digital Business Success, and it's yours for the downloading. Check it out today. Cindy has seen business intelligence, or BI, evolve dramatically throughout her career. To see the context for our conversation, she walked us through the growth of the field. So, Cindy, and, and as you've kind of evolved through the space, you've seen so many different generations of products. How would you define the history of how the space has evolved? What are the key changes that you've seen over time? What have been the key innovations? Like, give our give our listeners a sense for you know, if you were to tell a stylized history of BI, what have been the sort of major inflection points in that history, and and walk us through what matters you know, all the way up until today? Because I think sometimes hearing that story from somebody who's seen it is, is really helpful for people to get context as to where we are right now. I would define it now 
as four generations. And the first generation, it was really about reporting. And this was the era of business objects and Cognos, really where these products let you generate reports, often in a tabular form, writing the SQL for you. Then the second generation really was the visual-based discovery that Spotfire and Click pioneered, but I would say Tableau brought it to the next level. And a lot of these products originated as desktop products. The third generation really is was augmented analytics. And so this is about using things like AI-generated insights to help you find the hidden patterns in your data, but then also using things like search and natural language processing to truly let business users and non-technical users ask their own questions. Now, the augmented analytics wave of disruption that really ThoughtSpot pioneered, and at this point in time, I was at Gartner, that started in an on-premises world. So I would say this fourth generation that COVID accelerated and, and vendors, partners like Snowflake and Databricks is further accelerating is in the cloud and it's all about the ecosystem. So it's about connecting across that whole workflow in the cloud. So if I go from an operational system, and maybe we're talking about Workday or Salesforce or some other analytical system, and I want to connect to that data, I'm going to ingest that, maybe using another cloud product like Matillion or Fivetran. I'm going to maybe have some of that data in Snowflake. I might have some of that just in an S3 bucket or in Google BigQuery, and now I'm going to want to connect it to something like Alation and say, well, what's trusted? What's clean? Um, where is this coming from? How stale is it? And then I'm going to want to visualize it in my analytics tool, like ThoughtSpot, and then I might want to run a predictive machine learning model or a segmentation on it, and I could use DataRobot or Google ML. And it's all connected, but definitely in the cloud. So I would call that really the fourth generation. Yeah, so let me make sure that I got that right. So you you would say first generation is really reports and quite possibly dashboards, but the basic idea is just get me the answer about what happened. The next generation... First generation lacked dashboards. There were no dashboards in those products. Right. First generation did not have dashboards. Second generation started to. Got it. And so, but I remember, wait, like, didn't business objects and Cognos have some dashboarding capabilities or am I totally off base in, in all of that? They evolved to add those capabilities, like business objects actually acquired Excelsius to become their dashboard product, but very first generation did not. And even the charting was very, very basic. And that charting then defined, that sort of visual analytics really then defined, you know, that second generation that you're articulating. I certainly think about Click and Tableau as being really sort of the emblematic products where anybody could go to any database and just create this beautiful looking chart that would make them look, and their analysis look so professional. Uh, and, you know, earlier we actually had um, um, 
Cole Naflick, who talked about storytelling with data. And to me, sort of that second generation corresponded with people's ability to sort of tell stories and build their careers with data. And then there's this idea of kind of augmented analytics. And that's where this idea of kind of like, okay, now you're, you're doing the analysis. Let me help you do the analysis a little bit better and perhaps using AI and machine learning. Am I tracking correctly? And then, and then the last generation is this idea of ubiquity where basically all of the data is in the cloud, all of your operational resources are in the cloud. And so your analytics should just be where you're making the decision uh, broadly defined. Did I capture that right? Or did I mess that up a little bit? I think that's good, but I should ask you because you've, (laughs) even prior to Elation, you were working at Oracle. So you've been around a long time. Do you agree with these four waves as I've described them? It's funny because I, I sort of think about it as this world where first generation was kind of single source of truth. And second generation is exactly like kind of this almost to the self-service evolution, which I think corresponds basically to your visual view. I think in some sense, the visual tools allowed for agency with individuals where kind of that world of reporting presumed a centralization. And I do think it's the case that there's kind of this third wave. I've combined the third wave where kind of AI and the cloud are all one thing. But I think you're right to say those are actually distinct things and they're different and they can exist independently of each other. I think that's probably that's probably right and more correct. So I know I would totally agree. And it's funny because I always talk about BI as being the capability of helping people make decisions where AI is basically the capability of helping machines make decisions. But you're talking about these two things intersecting. Do you see that happening more and more in the, in the technology going forward? And how will that evolve people in their jobs and their roles? Because I think that's probably the you know, critical question. Yeah, it definitely is converging and what it it will help people. So again, if you think about we need good data to really be able to do any kind of analytics or AI. So have AI tell me about what I didn't know to ask about. So show me the patterns in the data that I didn't realize this is what's causing my manufacturing defect. Or this, if I'm thinking of a healthcare use case, this is the particular drug or treatment plan that has not been tried for this individual patient that really will lead to a better outcome. And yet I didn't know to ask about that particular drug. So I think AI will make the humans smarter. And I think it will also help with some of the toughest problems in the industry about data. We have a lot of data, but we still don't understand what kills me. We don't understand fundamentals around gaps in the data and biases in the data that I would like AI to do a better job of warning us about. I've got to imagine that coming to this space from the outside in is so confusing because, you know, especially when I speak about this to people who've never really done the work to understand analytics or AI or BI. And then, you know, I talk about what we do here at Alation as this thing called DI or data intelligence. And I say sort of, hey, well, you know, you kind of need good data in order to power good AI and good BI. And yet what you're describing is almost this kind of circularity where on some level, you know, really good human decisions are powered by artificial intelligence, which are powered by good data. And so they're not like, they're almost all codependent on each other, which gets really complicated and hard. Do you think this is going to get 
more complicated with more tools? Or do you see a world in which tools start to converge? The technology is not the problem. The bigger problem is poor data fluency or data literacy, as some people like to call it. And yet the way that data is becoming part of everyone's job, it's not just a distinct profession solely. We will continue to have data professionals, but data is part of everyone's job. And if ever there's been a teachable moment, as maybe exhausted as we are about talking about COVID, I actually had a person saying to me yesterday, oh my goodness, you know, the case counts, look at the case counts and and how can this even be right because I can't get a test for my kids? And I said, hello, this is a data gap. Do you not realize that? And we had the data gaps from month one of this pandemic. So now that person understands what a data gap is. And I said, take it a level further. If we really had good data, we would also be able to say, give me the data and the demographics of people that seem to be resistant to COVID or they just don't get as sick. Now we start to get a more complete picture of what's actually going on in particular populations. So I think that, and and then you talk about personal data and how that is either used to serve us or used against us, everyday citizens are really learning more what is data and how does it impact my day-to-day life. How do you think we navigate this big challenge that you're describing of building fluency and literacy with data? The first thing is, is recognizing that it's not teaching somebody technology. It's teaching somebody the language of the business or the language of life and how how data impacts that life. Take a college student applying for a job. How is data and AI going to help you or marginalize you in that process? So it's teaching them about data in context, the business context or the life context. And it's making sure that we're doing that at every age. We have a lot of business professionals that grew up pre-internet, and those are some of the senior leaders trying to digitally transform their organizations now. So teaching them about data in a business context, that has to happen. And it has to happen at the other end of the spectrum, that we are teaching data at a middle school and certainly a high school and college level. Colleges now have this. But I really think we've we've got to be addressing this at the middle school level as well. The role of sort of, you know, education is is massive here. But the, the, the challenge, of course, is that then there are swaths of people who come through the educational system and who don't necessarily have this awareness and understanding. And so then it's left in the private sector and industry to sort of fill this gap. And, you know, then there's this question of, well you know, if I'm running a company, do I have the time or the energy or the budget to be able to do this work? Uh, you know, do you see a mind shift change happening with folks saying, look, I do need to invest in this literacy? Or do you think that there's still lots of resistance? Or, you know, has it evolved or changed at all? Or is it the same? It has changed. So somebody said to me, Cindy, tell me what is the data economy? And I said, well, that actually is the economy, full stop, going forward. So, and even now. 
So I think those savvy business users and business leaders, they realize that if they are not data-driven, they will very quickly become just legacy. The question is, how quickly will that happen? And there's research, whether it's from McKinsey or A.T. Carney now actually publishes the ROI difference between leaders and laggards. Accenture had research showing that the revenue growth between analytics leaders is two to three times those of laggards. So it really is a business imperative. And we do increasingly see boards now saying to their management teams, what is your plan to become data-driven? And again, technology is a necessary ingredient, but that is not the hardest ingredient. It is this both data literacy and also the culture. Where do you start with that? Because there's probably a lot of people who maybe get it and think, okay, I want to transform my company. I want to become more data literate. I want the organization to have a better data culture. But then, of course, there's this question of what's the first step? And I guess that could be different for people, but how do you think about that and how do you advise people when they ask you? Yeah, I would always go back to the why Why? And so putting it in the context of the business, whatever industry you're in, if it's media, it's to capture that market share (laughs) and the, the amount of entertainment time share of wallet. If you're in healthcare, it's about improving patient outcomes without having the costs continue to spiral out of control. So you have to start with the why, come up with a, a quick win to paint a picture of what is possible, but also to go back and break down legacy operating models, legacy mindsets. So start with a quick win, share the success from that quick win, and then rinse, repeat, and scale. Yeah. It's funny because I think that idea of a quick win is often the most elusive things in, in, thing in data and analytics. Often people who are drawn to analytics and data tend to be people who want organization and want neatness and want clarity. And yet this notion that says you can't really solve world hunger, you've got to get a story out there that, that, that convinces people to get on the road with you is tough to convince people to do um, because people want to see larger change sooner often. Well, that's okay. I would say go after world hunger, but how about maybe just start with um, the poverty in my one town or (laughs) um, (laughs) so start there, paint a vision for what's possible, and then everyone work in parallel to get to that ultimate end game. So I, I do think you can't boil the ocean because people will lose interest And then they'll think this is just the shiny new thing that management is chasing and we were doing just fine with the old way. But if you take your eye off the ball, I mean, I just can't think of a single industry not being disrupted right now. So if you then say, okay, well, great, I've gotten to the place where I've gotten my quick win and I've shown the power of what analytics can do and I've hired a couple of bright people who sort of really understand the data and there's some really good data out there, what is the next phase of the journey that trips people up that you, that you find often happens? Where do people then get hung up once that first stage is passed? Well, you said an important thing, Satyan, that you hired a couple bright people. Well, where did you find those people? And what are yeah, you doing? Yeah, where did I find those people? <laughs> <laughs> We're all competing for the same tight labor market. So you do have to bring others along in the earth. 
journey. And that's about upskilling and reskilling because your longtime employees will have the domain knowledge and the tribal knowledge. So this is where I think about you have to as long as everyone's clear on the why, then it's about incentivizing the right behavior. And that's not always just money, like giving somebody a bonus. It also, maybe it's the confidence that they'll keep a job or get a promotion, but it's also celebrating the good behavior. So whenever a data-driven decision-making process is shared, or if hey, I found this great insight, if that's celebrated, even if the metric is negative, I think it should be rewarded that the data was shared. And then how do you use that data to learn to improve the metrics rather than using it to punish somebody? So you do have to reskill and then think about the incentives, all the variable incentives, whether it's money, celebrations, recognition, badging, gamification, user groups, all these things are super important. And and this is where I do think for the leaders, the analytics leaders who often are change agents, the CDOs who may get pummeled (laughs) in this process, their tribe may not always be internal. I think these change agents have to associate with others outside the organization so that they do not get demotivated or burned out when there's too many setbacks or naysayers. These people are being brought in ostensibly under this idea that like, hey, come in and get us some data and make us more analytical. And there's a sense that that's you know, an augmentation of the culture as opposed to actually a transformation of the culture. You know, it's interesting to hear that from CDOs, you know, from time to time. Have you seen those situations where people have come in under this kind of augmentation theory, but have been successful to actually drive a bigger change and really change how the company thinks? And and what do those leaders do? Because it, it just seems like such a gargantuan task. It, it is a gargantuan task. And yes, I mean, I I think of so many that are successful. And sometimes it's from within. (laughs) Sometimes it's from within. And and these the same companies are often held up as ones to emulate. Some, I would say, also will get fed up and burned out. And so they will not stay. If they have not been able to make the changes successful, they will not stay. But you look at whether it's great digital natives or even traditional organizations that have evolved. And so this is where these people, I know they'll get embarrassed (laughs) when I mention their names, but some of them I've had as guests on the Data Chief podcast, or they are repeat award winners. So I look at some of the people at Verizon, whether it's Ansar or now Jeff Noto, who actually went on to become the CFO, but they started in the analytics space. Or one of my longtime customers, Sally McConnell, the CDO at the Hartford now that I have worked with across at least four or maybe even five companies. So he's very much a change agent. He goes in, he, he evolves people 
to innovate. Joanne Stonier at MasterCard, Saul Rashidi at Estee Lauder. So I think, and I mean, she's been across, I want to say, cruise line, music. So there are these companies or individuals that will get them there. What are the things that you've seen that are common across those individuals? If I think about characteristics of these people. I do think, I go back to Jim Collins' Good to Great. He wrote about, I think it's a level five leader. And they do have a mindset of they're putting the company first and the mission first, and their egos are secondary. And they're very much about the team. And I do notice that these leaders they almost don't like it when I say, well, that was great. They prefer that I credit the team. And of course, it is the team that makes it possible, but it is the team that will um, get behind that mission. And they are great collaborators and connectors. So they're reading the room and they're figuring out who is going to block them and who is going to help them. And so they're building allies while they also work on the mindsets that are holding them back. Yeah, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, it's funny because in the technology adoption cycle, if you, you know, think through crossing the chasm, there's always this notion that sort of says, focus on your early champions to get to that success. Because that kind of gets back to your success story, right? Like get, get successful first and then go back and perhaps address the people who are detractors. Because, you know, day one, if all you do is spend your time on the detractors, you're never going to get anywhere. Absolutely. Being able to read the room is really hard. And and I guess then what do, what are the, some of the differences? I mean, they must have differences in styles. Like where can you see flex? And I guess maybe where do you see the opportunity for people to have different strokes or different approaches? So I think every style has to align with the industry and the company that you're going into. So some will be more autocratic and some will be more consensus driven. And you do have to, it's a question of how to get the job done within that existing culture because culture is so slow moving. Sometimes you have to change the people to make that happen. But I also think the way to change the people is also to change the incentives and clearly communicate the why. When we are when we keep throwing technology at people without explaining the why, that's when you get the pushback because everyone's working really hard and jobs in the data and analytics space are incredibly busy. There will always be more work to do than you can possibly get to. So it's about ruthless prioritization and making sure that you continue to evolve. Cindy's also working to eliminate blind spots in our field by hosting the Data Chief, ThoughtSpot's company podcast. I have to give full credit. The idea of the podcast came from our CMO, Scott Holden, who was a guest on another podcast. And he's like, we really should do podcasting because he is a active podcast listener. I, on the other hand, am an active reader. I would happily write another book. I could write a book a year if I had my druthers. But it's about bringing voices, bringing the voices, the best in the business, and having honest conversations about this range of topics so that organizations can evolve and really get to that ultimate business value and talk about what is working, what's not working. And 
our industry is changing so, so, so quickly. If you want to go back just two years ago, how much were we really talking about data mesh, data fabric? And I was relieved in a way. I wrote about how this is the top trend for 2022. We did a Data Chief live session on this in the fall. And only now can I actually say, good, everyone else is kind of agreeing with this as a top trend because I didn't know if I was being premature here. So you think about how quickly the technology is changing and the range of topics. It's both technology, it's people, process, culture, use cases, and I think the podcast gives people another way, educating themselves and being inspired. I think that this idea of being able to sort of share tips and tricks and sometimes the tactics and sometimes the strategies can be really helpful and you never really know what you're going to pick up. But that one nugget could be the difference between success and failure. And sometimes you just can't write everything down and you can't capture everything always so quickly or succinctly. So these conversations are awesome. Yeah, exactly. Let me actually change topics because there's one topic that you've written about that I think is really critical and obviously very important to you and and me too, which is diversity and inclusion. And so you write this great article in HBR. Can you tell us a little bit about what you wrote and why you wrote it? So it's really about how we can use data to get beyond vanity metrics. So organizations like to report their diversity and inclusion stats. And yet, and actually, let me correct that. Organizations use data to report their diversity stats. They do not share their inclusion stats. Inclusion is really, do you have a sense of belonging? Are you getting equal opportunities? As one uh, organization likes to say, diversity is being invited to the party inclusion is being invited to dance at the party. So it's hard to get to consistent inclusion metrics. And an organization may say, oh, but look at all the minorities we hired, and yet they're in the low-paying jobs. Or there's still high turnover there because they always get talked over or they don't get considered for the next promotion or what have you. And so I want companies to think beyond just reporting the obvious headcount numbers and really looking at leading indicators to inclusion. And so that might be using things like looking at calendar meeting invites or Slack channel contributions. What are the diversity metrics and what are the participation rates for minorities in these different venues, looking at things like employee well-being and employee engagement platforms. What are the early indicators here? So that is my hope for the industry. We still have so much to do. As I read that article, we had just embarked here at Alation on a similar initiative where we basically did diversity measurement on a team-by-team basis to understand, you know, how diverse we truly were. And then would start to target teams, recruiting metrics to say, look, you might be red, yellow, green relative to the company average. After reading your article, one of the the hopes that I have is that in the same way people have compensation measurement and compensation data measured, that companies, there's this great service called Option Impact where everybody contributes in the tech field, their comp data, and therefore you can figure out what market actually looks like. And you would wish, or at least I would wish that if there's some listeners that are interested, that you could have companies contribute their 
diversity data because you could then see a world in which if everybody's contributing that data, then the lack of contribution becomes, you know, its own thing and people can compare to what best in class looks like. And I think a lot of that measurement could help evolve the field pretty substantially. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think Bloomberg has taken some good steps here initially with the gender index index, uh, or sorry, Bloomberg has taken a good step here with the gender equality index. They're evolving that to include, um, other minorities, but then also if I look at ADP, the payroll company has some benchmarking data as well. So the more we share this, I think that's a positive, but Satyan, look in the tech industry. If you were following Twitter recently, look at some of the comments from the CEO of Palantir that DEI should be D-I-E, die, like who cares? <laughs> Something like this was one of his tweets. So I think we have to keep um, paying attention to, we want the best people And I want to get to a point where we don't have to talk about this, where we just are diverse and people are not being marginalized unintentionally. So I think a lot of this is really about unintentional biases, but it's still a pernicious problem. At Alation, our company motto is data intelligence plus human brilliance. And I think this conversation shows us that we truly cannot have one without the other. Data gives us the ability to recognize blind spots we didn't even realize existed. But without the human factor, high data fluency rates, and a strong data culture, we'll never realize that an elephant is so much more than we can feel. Thank you to Cindy for joining us for this episode of Data Radicals. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Thank you for listening. Alation gives enterprises the tools to make data-driven decisions and grow a data culture. Our data catalog can minimize the time workers spend searching for and worrying about the data they need to do their jobs, turning months of frustration into minutes of action. Visit Alation, that's Alation with an A, dot com today.